talking about the blood, the power of the blood. And there is power in the blood. It's never lost its power. It will continue all through eternity to speak of what Jesus did in redeeming us and in our justification. And so when we go to Hebrews 9.12, we're going to read it out of the New King James Version, and they'll put it up on the screen for us too. It says, Not with the blood of bulls and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all. I love that, once for all. So Jesus was our representative. He took all of humanity into that place. He entered the most holy place, and he placed his blood for every single one of us. And it says, having obtained an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, we talked about that last week. We talked about how our conscience is cleansed, the shame, the guilt, all of those things that would dog us, and the enemy would be the accuser, how he could grab hold of those things and try and remind us of our past, that if he tries to do that, the the word says the blood has cleansed our conscience. It didn't just do something on the outside, it went clear to the inside, and it and it touched our conscience. And so, if he comes as the accuser, we can come and we can say, no, no, remember the blood. If he reminds us of our past, we remind him of the blood. So, the blood can actually, literally cleanse our conscience. And then it goes on, and it says, and for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. And that's what we're going to talk about today. By means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So I love this. There's a theme in this verse. He says the eternal spirit, uh, that blood was offered through the eternal spirit for an eternal redemption so that we could have an eternal inheritance. Do you notice a theme here? (laughs) Eternal is definitely the theme. This isn't a temporary thing. There wasn't an expiration date on these things that Jesus did. No, he did it once for all, all who would ever be. You know, I learned some things about expiration dates at Our Ladies Conference. (laughs) I never really paid that much attention and don't pay that much attention to expiration dates. You know, things I've used things in cans and boxes and whatever. If they're sealed, I think it's pretty much okay. But we had crackers at our ladies' conference that were expired. (laughs) And it was one of the nastiest, grossest, most horrifying things I've ever put in my mouth. (laughs) It was so bad. We we took that as communion and... uh, I put it in my mouth, and I was like, oh my gosh, I hope this was only mine. But as I looked around at the faces, it wasn't only mine, it was all of ours. And Kathy Tricoli was sitting next to me, and I looked at her and I said, what the heck was that? And she said, I don't know, but it was bad. I said, yeah, it was bad. So then at dinner that night, I was thinking about it, and I said, you know, and literally, That taste 
stayed in my mouth for three days. We tasted what sin tasted like in the broken body of the cracker of communion, and it stuck with us for three days, like the three days that Jesus went down and raised. I mean, it was literally the taste of sin. So anyway, there is no expiration date on this redemption. It's an everlasting, eternal uh, redemption, and I love that. And why is it? Because there was an everlasting covenant. God made a covenant with himself in the uh, chance that man would fall. He said, we will never let him be lost to us. We love him. We created him, and we will redeem him. And so the son stepped up, and he said, I will do that. And that was before there ever was a sin problem. And aren't you glad that our Father took care of and brought us the answers before there was ever even a problem? I love that he had such forethought because he's an eternal thinker, right? He thinks in the realm of eternity. And then there's Colossians 2:11 out of the Passion Translation that I want to read. And it says this. It says, through our union with him, we have experienced circumcision of heart. All of the guilt and power of sin has been cut away and is now extinct because of what Christ the Anointed One has accomplished for us. See, he did it for us. And we talked about that last week, how we have a righteousness consciousness because of what he did for us. For we've been buried with him into his death. Our baptism into death also means that we were raised with him when we believed in God's resurrection power. So when were we raised? When we believed. When we believed. And when we believed, that's when it took place that we were raised in God's resurrection power, the power that raised him from death's realm. This realm of death describes our former state, for we were held in sin's grasp, but now we've been resurrected out, resurrected out of that uh, realm of death, never to return, for we are forever alive and forgiven of all of our sins, forever alive. That's the place that we live in. So we're raised with Christ, and this inheritance is something that we step into, and it's active from the time that we believe and that we receive him. So it's important that we know that. It's important that we understand that. So the enemy can't steal from us. He can't lie to us. He can't accuse us. He can't tell us we're not who we are. We can say, no, no. That's not my name anymore. That is not my name. No, my name is redeemed. My name is restored. My name is blessed. My name is prospered. My name is healed. That's who I am. Why? Because of the blood. And when did that happen? When we received him and his sacrifice. So it's important that we know that. And then let's jump over to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 24, which is where we were last week. Hebrews 12, 24 says this, and uh, Hebrews is really a great, read the whole thing when you, when you are studying this week. Read the whole chapter of Hebrews 12. It talks about how we keep our eyes on him so that we can obtain the end of our faith, the promise, the prize. And then it says, uh, we do that as he did. We consider him. We consider his sacrifice. And when we go through a trial, we let what he did influence us to the point where it changes how we act how we respond, how we react, um, because we can act as one who is free 
and who lives in peace. And I love that. And then because of this peace, we have uh, this place of living in the new covenant. So Hebrews 12.24 says this, And to Jesus, the mediator, the go-between, the agent of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood of which speaks of mercy, a better and nobler and more gracious message than the blood of Abel, which cried out for vengeance. Now, first of all, so Abel's blood cried out for vengeance or justice. He wanted justice, and, and it was right. He should be crying out for justice, and that's when the, that blood was uh, shed. It was unjust, so justice was being called for. But it says Jesus' blood has a better message. Jesus' blood has a better, nobler, and more gracious, gracious message. The message that Jesus' blood cries is forgiveness. It cries out forgiveness. In fact, the New Living Translation says this, Jesus' blood speaks of forgiveness instead of crying for vengeance. So first of all, it's a revelation that he lets us know that blood speaks. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing in itself. But that blood speaks for something. It calls out. And Abel's blood cried for vengeance or justification, but Jesus' blood provided that, and it calls for forgiveness. I love that. The NIV says that his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The New King James Version says that his blood speaks of better things than that of Abel. And then God's Word translation says this, Jesus' blood that speaks a better message than Abel's. So blood has a voice, and blood cries out. And just as the blood of Abel cried out, the blood of Jesus cries out. And it cries out for redemption and forgiveness and healing and restoration. And all of those things are in the blood of Jesus. And here's the good news. When we have received that blood sacrifice, when we have received him, that blood continues to cry out on our behalf. It continues to speak. It is still speaking. So one thing I want to talk about this morning is pleading the blood. How do we plead the blood? And what is pleading the blood? Well, you could even say it this way. You could say applying the blood. You could say acknowledging the blood. Or you could say pleading the blood. You could say any one of those. But pleading the blood of Jesus because it speaks a better word is, is what we do over our circumstances. We do over the attack of the enemy. We do that over a situation or a relationship that needs restoration. We plead the blood of Jesus because the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. That word is forgiveness, it's restoration, it's healing, it's help. So I want to read something out of the uh, book by Andrew Murray called The Blood of Jesus. He says, The shedding of his blood was the culmination of the sufferings of our Lord. The atoning efficacy of those sufferings was in that shed blood. It is there of great importance that the believer should not rest satisfied in the mere acceptance of the blessed truth that he is redeemed by the blood. See, a lot of Christians just rest in that. I'm redeemed by the blood. I'm going to heaven. 
They don't go beyond that to what the blood is offering them in their everyday life. And then he says this. He says, but we should press on to a fuller knowledge of what is meant by that statement and learn what the blood is intended to do in a surrendered soul. Its effects are manifold, for we read in Scripture of reconciliation through the blood, cleansing through the blood, sanctification through the blood, union with God through the blood, victory over Satan through the blood, life through the blood. These are separate blessings, but are all included in one sentence, redemption by the blood. It is only when the believer understands what these blessings are and by what means they become his that we can experience the full power of redemption. So as we look at pleading the blood this morning, this is part of how we experience all of those things in the blood. He says we need to know how these blessings are ours and by what means they become ours. You know, to not just rest in the fact that I am saved, but actually let salvation affect every part of my life every day because what is salvation? It's being healed, delivered, prospered, preserved, made whole and protected in every way. So that's what salvation is. It's far more than going to heaven. Well, then we go back to another scripture in Isaiah 43, 21. And it says this out of the Amplified. It says, the people that I formed for myself, they may set forth my praise and they shall do it. And we read this last week. He says, I, even I, am he who blots out and cancels your transgressions for my own sake. And I love that. God says, I, even I, I, the one who could hold it against you if I chose to, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions. And why does he do it? For my own sake. Because there's such a deep and wonderful and intense love that he has to restore us into his presence that he says, I'm going that extra mile. I'm doing what no one else in your life would do to restore you. And then it goes on and it says, and I will not remember your sin. Put me in remembrance. Remind me of your merits. Let us plead and argue together. Set forth your case that you may be justified, proved right. So the words plead the blood, you won't find them in the Bible. You won't find plead the blood, but you'll find the action of pleading the blood over and over and over again. And right here, we have a precedent to plead the blood because we ask this question when we read this. He says, put me in remembrance of your merits. Well, what are my merits? Am I going to bring my good things to the Lord? No. My only merit is the blood of Jesus. And then he says, let us plead and argue together. Set forth your case that you may be justified. What is justified? Well, it's made right. It's proved right. But we could say it this way, and we said it last week, just as if I'd never because I applied the blood. So justified means that place of being proved right. And what is our case for justification? The blood. So when he says, let us plead and argue together that you may be justified, he's talking about putting forth the blood. We plead the blood. We plead the blood. So the blood is still speaking for us 
but we need to speak about the blood. We need to talk about the blood. We need to apply the blood. We need to acknowledge the blood. And when we have an awareness of the blood in our everyday life, then our life begins to be covered in all of those places with the knowledge of what he did for us so that we don't accept less than what he has provided, so that we don't accept less than reconciliation and cleansing and sanctification and union with God and victory and life, redemption by the blood. So pleading the blood is a very big part of how we overcome and how we appropriate the promises, how we appropriate the victory, how we appropriate the eternal inheritance in our life. It's a very important part. It's not that plead the blood are magic words, right? Because we can look at any situation and we can say, I plead the blood. But what does that mean to you? (laughs) It's not that these are the magic words. It's not like, in the name of Jesus is the magic words that make things happen. No, I plead the blood and in the name of Jesus have to be attached to what Jesus did. In the name of Jesus means that I have authority in the name because he gave it to me to put my foot and trample on serpents and scorpions in my life that I can stand in a place that he made for me and that he gave me and the enemy can't can't, uh, trespass that place. So in the name of of Jesus, by the authority of Jesus, I stand, right? So when I plead the blood, I plead the blood over a situation. That means I apply the blood. I'm saying that this thing has to be restored. It has to come into the right place. It has to be justified because I understand what the blood did for me. The blood was for my reconciliation, so I'm not going to accept anything less than that. I'm going to stand in this place where I plead the blood over this situation. See, it's not that they're magic words. It's not that we think we're going to get something or gain something. In fact, these are actually weapons that we have to be trained to use. So when we plead the blood, it's a weapon. And it doesn't function out of pride or entitlement, but it functions by humility. It functions because we stand in a place where we say, it's not me, it's only you. And we put our life in him so that his life can be in us. It's a place of humility. So when we plead the blood, we connect with the sacrifice that was made for us. And we have to be skillful in our application of the blood. Because we can't plead the blood with boldness without a consciousness of who we are. It's that righteousness consciousness that we talked about last week that lets us plead the blood with boldness. And then we go back over to Roman, or Revelation 12, 11, out of the New King James. And it says this. It says, and they overcame him, talking about Satan, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. So our testimony evidently has a part in how we access the victory that the blood provided. 
Our testimony is part of it. So owning what Jesus did for me in every part of my life through my very own words and my very own witness, because you know that's what a testimony is. It's my personal account. (laughs) So owning what he did for me through my very own words, through my very own witness, is part of my victory. So my walk, my talk, my day, my work, my kids, my life is affected by the blood in my testimony. So the Bible says that Jesus became flesh and he walked among us. And you know, I was thinking about this this week as I was getting ready for this message and I thought, how wonderful. You know, the blood could have been shed by Jesus as a baby and it would have been the pure, spotless, sinless blood. But he made a point to walk among us, to identify in all points as a human, to overcome temptation, to uh, feel the feelings. You know, Jesus, when we look at him in the word, he laughed, he cried, he loved people, he walked with people, he understood where they uh, hurt, and he understood so much. And that's part of what he shed blood for. And so as he shed his blood, he shed his blood in multiple places, and every one of them was for us and for a certain part of our humanity to bring it back into a place of restoration. So Colossians 1.20, out of the Amplified, says this. It says, And God purposed that through, or by the service, the intervention of him, the Son, that all things should be completely reconciled back to himself. And I love that. It says all things. That means every part of us, completely reconciled and brought back to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, as through him the Father made peace by means of the blood of his cross. But then when you read it into in the um, Passion Translation, it says this. It says, and by the blood of his cross... Everything in heaven and on earth is brought back to himself, back to its original intent. I love that. Back to a place of restored innocence again. Original intent, restored innocence. So it was through the blood, all the way from the Garden of Gethsemane, down the Via Dolorosa to Golgotha, that was shed for us, to redeem every part of our humanity back to its original intent and restored to innocence again. So today, I want to go through just these places where he shed blood for us and what they mean, what they mean for us. So there's seven places from the garden all the way to Golgotha, and the first one is the Garden of Gethsemane. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke twenty-two forty-four tells us this. It says, And being in agony of mind, he prayed all the more earnestly and intently, and his sweat became like great drops or clots of blood dropping down to the ground. Jesus sweat blood. But it was more than just a stressful moment for Jesus. Jesus understood what was happening. Jesus was taking the cup of wrath. 
And that cup of wrath was so that we could take the cup of the new covenant. Every time we take communion, we partake of that cup of the new covenant. And we say things, his body was broken for me, and we break that little piece of bread and we take it. And then we take the cup and we say, this is the cup of the new covenant that was the blood shed for me, and we take it. So it represented something. And Jesus was taking that cup of wrath, which contained all of the sin of humanity. In the garden, it was way more than just a stressful moment for Jesus. But that's what happens. Your body can sweat blood when you're under great stress. But what he was going into was so intense. It was so powerful. He was actually looking at and taking the will of humanity that went away from God and restoring the will. He was restoring our will. He was making it a place for us in shedding his blood that we could now choose him again. And so Jesus wrestled in the garden with his own will, and he said, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But guess what? He overcame in the place of his will. So Jesus' blood was shed for our will so that our will could be restored, so that our will could be set on the right path. And that blood is still speaking for us, for our will. The second place is when Jesus was spit upon and hit in the face and slapped, and Isaiah tells us that his beard was pulled out. In Matthew 26, 67, it says this, Then they spat upon his face and they struck him with their fists and they slapped him on the face. Isaiah 50 verse 6 says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. In Isaiah 52 14 it says, For many the servant of God became an object of horror. Many were astonished at him, at his face. His whole appearance was marred more than any man's. His form became the form of that of the sons of man. Wow. Isaiah 52, 14 out of the CSB version, it says this, um, just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured he didn't even look like a man. His form did not resemble a human being. Wow. In Isaiah 53, 3, it says, Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we did not appreciate his worth or have any esteem for him. See, when his beard was plucked out, and can you even imagine? I was looking around, you know, uh, Robert and Daniel and, and uh, Stephen, they all have beards. Can you imagine if somebody was pulling your beard out of your face and your flesh was being ripped out with it, what that would feel like and what that would look like. But Jesus did it. And you know, they did that as a very dishonoring thing to him. But it disfigured his identity to the point where the word says he couldn't even be identified as a human being. Jesus, when his beard was plucked out, when he was beat on his face, it was for our honor and our identity. You know, identity is a really big issue right now. It's a big thing, but Jesus died for our identity. And the blood cries out for our identity. And our identity is that we are children of God, created in the image and the likeness of God. That we are created to give him glory. That our lives are to give him glory. And Jesus died and shed blood so that that place could be restored. 
so that we wouldn't look at ourselves and think that we are ugly or we're not worthy or we're not accepted or we need to find a place to be accepted outside of him. He created us so that we could be accepted in him and find our true worth in him. So he died for our identity. And then, you know, and it just makes me shake as I'm just saying these because I picture the blood being shed. There were stripes on his back. In Isaiah 53, 4, it says this, Surely he has borne our griefs, sickness, weaknesses, and distresses, and carried our sorrows and pain of punishment. Yet we ignorantly considered him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God as if with leprosy. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our guilt and iniquities. The chastisement needful to obtain peace and well-being for us was upon him. And with the stripes that wounded him, we are healed and made whole. The stripes on his back were for our healing, for the healing of our body. And again, his face was disfigured, but his body was too. He was beaten to the point where his back was laid open. He was stripped and stretched over a post, and those cat of nine tails raked across his back and tore his flesh wide open. You couldn't even tell that he had flesh because it was broken for us. His body was broken for us, completely broken for us. So when we plead the blood for our healing, we're remembering that he died for my healing. And where sickness would tear and tear apart our bodies, he says, that's not right. I already paid for that. He paid for it. And that blood is still crying out for us, still. And then there was the crown of thorns that was placed on his head. And it says that they made sport of him, saying, hail, greetings, good health to you, long life, king of the Jews. But that crown was placed on his head and blood flowed from his head because he brought restoration to our mind. So every thought, every memory, everything that someone had done to us or we had done could be erased because that blood flowed from his head from, so that our minds could be restored. And that means mental illness. It means every kind of disease that would attack our mind. It means every kind of addiction. You know, addiction is rooted in shame. It's rooted in shame, and the enemy plays upon that because he plays with our mind. But that was paid for. It was paid for on the cross. Every kind of anxiety and stress, everything that would attack our mind was paid for on the cross. So when we plead the blood because there's anxiety happening, because there's things happening with our mind, then we plead the blood over that and we say, no, it was already paid for. The blood took care of it. And then there were the nails in his hands. You know, when Adam fell, God said, now the ground will bring forth to you, but it will bring forth in toil and thorns and thistles. And when his hands were pierced and blood flowed from our hands, it was to restore our prosperity, the work of our hands, so that we could freely do things with God and for God. Our hands were not made to fight and work. Our hands were made so that we could lay hands on the sick, so that life could come through our hands, so that our hands could love and lift people. He restored that place. And then there were the nails in his feet. And the nails in his feet really have to do with the path that we walk. He restored righteousness. We walk a path of righteousness and rightness because he took nails in his feet. 
And that restored our honesty and our integrity. And we don't have to backslide and we don't have to look back. We can look forward and we can walk forward with him, onward and upward with him. And then lastly, there was the spear that was placed in his side. And it says, when the spear went in, that blood and water flowed. And when that blood and water flowed, it really shows us that that blood was still speaking for us. You know, blood and water, I heard one person say they're the elements of birth. And they represent relationships. Relationships. And I think about it this way. You know, that, that spear went into his side and right where the ribs are. And, you know, that's the place where God took a rib out and he made Eve, his wife, first family. And so that spear went in and blood and water flowed, but it was to restore our relationship, the heart. It went to the heart. And those relationships so affect our heart and it affected God's heart when we were separated him from him. But now that place was restored, but not just the relationship with God, the relationship with people was restored too the relationship with our families, the relationship with our kids, the relationship in marriages. You know, Jesus, we are the body of Christ. The relationships with the body were restored. The relationships, and it's such a big thing. Jesus is coming back for a bride that's perfect, that's, that's, that's put together, <laughs> not one that's fighting and separated. And those relationships can be restored, and wherever they're not, we can plead the blood over that. So I thought it important to bring these seven places where Jesus shed his precious blood so that we could see that when we plead the blood, it covers everything. There is nothing left undone. There is nothing lacking. There is nothing wanting. In fact, if we will appropriate and apply the blood and plead our case, there isn't a day that we would have to walk without. Oh, man. So how do we plead the blood? In our last few minutes, <laughs> how do we plead the blood? How do we do that? Because is it just saying the words, I plead the blood? No. It's connecting to what Jesus did. And I'll just tell you in my own life, just recently, how I was pleading the blood. So um, I had some symptoms that were very concerning to me. And so I knew that I needed to speak the word over these symptoms. I knew that I needed to be restored. I knew that they had to go in the name of Jesus, right? I knew that the blood had already covered it. But in pleading the blood, I didn't just say, I plead the blood, command the devil to go. No, I began to fellowship with the blood. I began to sit with the word, and Psalm 103 was my place to go. And so Psalm 103 says this. It says, bless affectionately, gratefully praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. You are the one who covers yourself with light as a garment. Oh, that's 104, sorry. Uh, it says, it starts the same way. Bless, affectionately, gratefully praise the Lord, O my soul, and all that is deepest within me, bless his holy name. And I just started there, and I began to fellowship with him on that word. I said, Lord, I just praise you. I just thank you so much. I thank you, Lord, 
that I do bless your name. You're faithful, you're wonderful, you're good, you're God to me. You're my God, you're God who heals me. And then it says, bless affectionately, gratefully praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not one of all of his benefits. And I began to recall and say, all right, Lord, that's right. Oh man, you've done it before. You healed me of this. You healed me of that. You restored this in my life. You restored relationships. You restored these things. Father, when I prayed about this, you moved on it. You did it. I thank you, Father, that I forget not one of all of your benefits. Yes, you've healed all of my diseases. I thank you, Father God. Oh, that you're so good to me. And then it says, who forgives every one of all of your iniquities, who heals every one of all of your diseases. And I would begin to just fellowship with the blood, plead the blood over that symptoms that I was having. And I just would picture and say, I thank you, Lord, that that blood was shed for me. I thank you, Lord, that it starts at my head and it goes into my face and it goes into my ears and my, my heart and it goes all the way down. Every symptom that I'm experiencing, Lord, I thank you that that blood covers me. I plead the blood over my body. I thank you that it's restoring right now. It's changing symptoms. It's changing things. It's, it's bringing my life back into that place, Father, where my original purpose is restored. I'm coming to that place, Father, where my healing is working from the inside to the outside. And and I, would, and I would just speak in fellowship with the blood. And he says this, who redeems your life from the pit and corruption, who beautifies, dignifies, crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercy. And I would just bask in his love. I would just, I would just let myself feel his presence and his love and fellowship with him and with the word. And see, we do this, and this is how we plead the blood. If we're having a relationship problem, we bring that to the Lord, and we say, I thank you, Lord, that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And Father, I plead the blood over this relationship. I plead the blood, Father God. And we begin to picture the blood flowing into every part of that, healing every crack in our heart, healing every word that was said, healing everything that was not right and bringing it into restoration. We begin to see ourselves speaking to and fellowshipping and doing things with that person because the blood has restored. See, we fellowship with the blood. We fellowship with God's word. We do that and we speak it. And we don't just do it once and we don't just do it twice. We do it over and over and over again until the thing looks like the blood has changed it. <laughs> See, with those symptoms that I was experiencing in my body, I didn't just do it once. I didn't just do it twice. In fact, there was nights I was just laying in bed awake for hours and Hundreds of times I would repeat and fellowship with these words, with him, laying there, talking to him, receiving what the blood had done for me. That's how we plead the blood. So we don't just say, I plead the blood and walk away. <laughs> no, that's trying to make it magic words. <laughs> but it's not. It's knowing him. And Andrew Murray said this. He said, it's the constant speaking of that blood that keeps heaven open for sinners and sends streams of blessing down to earth. It's through that blood that Jesus as mediator carries on without ceasing his mediatorial work. The throne of grace owes its existence ever and always to the power of the blood. Oh, the wonderful power of the blood of Christ. 
just as it has broken open the gates of the grave and of hell to let Jesus out and us with him, so it has opened the gates of heaven for him and us with him to enter. The blood has an almighty power over the kingdom of darkness and hell beneath. You know, when you plead the blood, you can sing it, you can say it, you can declare it, or you can pray it. <laughs> and you know, sometimes when I was pleading the blood, I was just saying, oh, the blood of Jesus, singing, which I don't know if I should sing it for you because my singing is not like the worship team. <laughs> oh, the blood of Jesus, it washes white as snow, it heals my body, and, and just singing those things over myself. And you know, you can do that anywhere. Nobody even has to know what you're doing, but you sing over yourself, or you say, or you declare, or you uh, pray. However you release and connect with the blood, we need to be connecting with the blood. So pleading the blood, why do we do it? Because it's a weapon, because the blood is still speaking on our behalf. And if we connect to the blood, then I love how he says it here, streams of heaven rain down blessing upon the earth. <laughs> Amen. Well, why don't you stand with me?